I'm going to read from the book of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 19, which is page 529 in your blue Bible. I'll give you a second. Blue Bible people. Okay. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will catch some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish." fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Casey Reyes. The best. Uh, appreciate you. Hi, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor. I've already met some new people here, so welcome. We're glad you're here. We love uh, gathering here on Sundays to uh, hear from God through preaching, through just worship together. Uh, one thing I want to just remind you: we got the who needs a reminder? Easter's coming up, but April 17th is Easter. Remind you of the details of Easter gathering here. So 7:39 and 10:30 a.m. We'll have three services here. Uh, we'll have kids ministry up to second grade. The rest of the kids will be in here. It'll feel exactly like a normal Sunday, except people will be dressed a notch better, and my sermon will be a notch shorter, just so we can get through three services. So as you think about people in your life, your neighbors, your next door neighbor, your coworkers that you want to invite to Easter, because Easter and Christmas are those times where the guard is dropped, and people are like, you know what? I'll go to a church. Or they're already thinking like, oh, Easter's coming up. That's the time when I want to go to church. Uh, Use this to just remind yourself and maybe give it to someone to invite them to church. Also, Good Friday, which is April 15th, the Friday before, we will have a service here, 6 p.m. That's not 
usually the service you invite a person to church for the first time because it is altogether different. It'll be dark. It'll be quiet. We're going to have a very somber, reflective time looking at Jesus on the cross. So Good Friday, be here to worship Jesus through sort of somber reflection. And Easter, be here and invite some people because I'm just more and more convinced. I was at this conference where we had all these great discussions, topics, leaders uh, from everything from hell and racism. We just think of every topic that's a hot button topic and has been. We talked about it. But one of the sweetest, most sort of pastoral moments was this older guy who was talking about the doctrine of hell. He just says, I just want to stop and just say, like, people are living in hell right now in a lot of the lives of your friends, your neighbors, your brothers, your sisters, your parents that they can't get out of. And the only person that can get them out of that is Jesus. So let's just stop. And he stopped and he prayed and said, Jesus. And that's what this is for. Like, we don't. We want people to meet Jesus. Those of us that love Jesus want other people to love Jesus. We want to love Jesus more. So that's what Easter is going to be all about. That being said, it's been pretty sweet, like, doing five Easter messages before we get to Easter. Because it's like we've done the thing. We've seen Jesus risen from the grave. If you're new here and you haven't been here, we've been walking through the Gospel of John for a long time, many, many months. Jesus was killed on a Roman cross. He was placed in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. He would be buried in a rich man's grave. The tomb the rock was rolled away, and he walked out of his own tomb, and now he's on his resurrection tour. He is like walking around just showing people, I am who I said I am. All those things I was saying were exactly true, and that's what we get to look here as he interacts with the disciples yet again. But this story in particular sort of focuses in on a famous character, famous or infamous, Peter. If you're a church person, if church is a normal part of your experience, you've heard stories of Peter. Peter is the rock. If you're Catholic, Peter is the first leader of the Catholic church. He's the one that all the succession of leadership comes from. If you're Orthodox, same story. If you're Protestant, he's one of the top three figures in our church history as far as building and setting the foundation for church. He is an important figure. And I don't always do this. I don't make you kind of flip around a lot just because as people get comfortable in church, it's hard to like then also be kind of always behind on where we're at in Scripture. But I do want us to just look at Peter. So if you will, just fast forward with me like a couple pages and go over to Acts chapter 2. Because I want to look at Peter, fast forward a couple weeks down the road. So again, the church started with Peter, specifically it started by the Holy Spirit through the apostles, which Peter was the head of. And Acts chapter 2 is where this thing, Redemption North Mountain, has its origin. Where did all these churches come from? Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes down on them. And there's the first church service ever, and it's an international affair. And this is how it's described. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, these are the people hearing the sermon that Peter just preached. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, there's thousands of people here, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, currently for them, for your children, and for all who are far off, which includes everyone in this room, whom the Lord God our calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves. Those who received his word were baptized. And thus were added that day about 3,000 souls, which in this case, they only count males. So there's actually a couple more thousand probably. 
So pause right there. Peter, you're the rock. Why are you the rock? This is why he's the rock. He's the foundation of the church, standing up in the midst of a hostile crowd, preaching the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, and saying, they say, what do we do about it? Repent. Imagine talking to a room, a stadium full, footprint center. What do you all need to do? Repent. Turn around. Change your ways. Ask for forgiveness. And that's what Peter does. He is the rock. But what's fascinating, go back to John chapter 21, and we'll kind of camp out here. The last time we experienced Peter the rock, it's night. Jesus is off being arrested, taken to a cross. Peter had just declared, I am the greatest of the apostles. These other guys are going to not be as great as me. And then someone comes up to Peter and says, aren't you with Jesus? No, 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 that's not me. He's staying there. Hey, I think you look like one of those dudes falling around that Galilean guy. Uh Uh-uh. And a little tiny, sweet little girl. Picture a little Statsny girl. Hey, aren't you? No. And he cusses and he denies Jesus three times. Acts 2, the rock the church has built. A couple chapters prior to this. I do not know that man. What has changed from here to here in the life of Jesus? The answer is found completely in this text. And it's more than just the resurrection of Jesus. It's a personal encounter Peter has with Jesus, the resurrected Savior, where Jesus brings him in, the word would be restores him. And he restores the joy of his salvation. What we're going to see play out as we go into this is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, that's the famous part, I shall not want. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul, and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What we're about to watch is Peter having Psalm 23 lived out in his life. He, Jesus, is restoring Peter's soul and setting him on a path of righteousness for his name's sake. And here's what's not unique about Peter. We all need our souls restored once and for all by faith in Jesus Christ, but ongoing, day by day, week by week, we must encounter Jesus, the only one who can restore our souls. And that's what we get to do as we walk through this story of Peter. So I want to just take a moment of silence here. Just close your eyes, bow your head. In that psalm, he restores my soul. Let's just quietly ask God to restore our souls again. Jesus, restore our souls yet again. Your mercies are new every day. Your grace is never ending. It never runs out. So again, we ask you for your grace and your mercy and you to show up as you showed up here for Peter. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of set up the story with how Jesus and Peter sort of got connected. And then I'm going to walk through what does restoration look like as Jesus meets with Peter. And there's five just beautiful truths I see of how Jesus, our restorer, interacts with him. But first, I want to just get to that point. So let's go to chapter 21, verse 1, where Casey read for us. Again, this is the resurrection tour. 
This is Jesus bouncing around, showing people that he's back from the grave and all things are going to be made new and the new reality has started. Chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, pause right there. Simon's always listed first because he's the leader. Not because he's greater, but he's the leader. Thomas called the twin. That was the guy who had all those doubts. Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee the sons of Zebedee fighting over who gets to get the most in heaven. And the two others of a disciple were together. So seven total disciples are together again. And again, even as you list that, that's not like a dream team of righteousness and goodness. It's the people Jesus chose because that's who he chose. Simon Peter, verse 3, said to them, I'm going fishing. Pause right there. A lot of commentators are like, why is he going fishing? Is this sin? Is he neglecting his responsibility to seek out the risen Lord? I don't know. I think it's because he's a fisherman. And people who love fishing love fishing. If there's an opportunity to fish, they fish. People who have to fish for their job fish because they have to fish because it's their job. Either way, he goes fishing. And you see his leadership even better in this. And they said to him, we will go with you. Why is everyone fishing? Because Peter went, so they all followed him. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught Nothing. Pause right there. That's John's, I think, poetic way to just kind of give us a little reminder of life without Jesus. Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Author Hebrews says, without faith, meaning a trust in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. Other places says, with faith, all things are possible, which means the thing that is most important is not actually a thing, it's a person. And what have you done with the person of Jesus? Jesus has resurrected from the grave and he's over here and they are fishing over here and it says they caught nothing. And it's not like we're not going to prosperity gospel this and start connecting dots and we're going to leave here rich. No, that's not the case. But without Jesus, life is nothing. For fishermen, it's nothing. For moms, without Jesus, it's nothing. For you younger people who are single and looking forward to what's next and all these milestones in life, without Jesus, those are nothing. Without Jesus, it is nothing. Verse 4, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Pause right there. I love how truthful the gospel writers are. Jesus rises out of his own grave and he shows up. And every time he shows up, there's always confusion. I'm like... Who is that? And like you would think, like I transport myself back there, like I would know right away. And that's just not, why? Because that's not how faith works. We're all kind of seeing, Paul says, dimly through sort of a foggy window. And even Jesus, after sealing the deal on his life, death, and resurrection, they say, ah, who is that over there? And they don't know it's Jesus. Verse 5. Yet Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Again, this isn't the words of Jesus they're hearing, some guy on the shore. They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. Lights go on. Why then? Because that's when it happened. But now it's the Lord, and they know it. That's him who we love. What happens next? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He was possibly, probably naked or very little on, so he puts on a little clothing. And what's he do? 
He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about 100 yards off. Pause right there. Like I, people, some guy at this conference like, what, do you ever cry? I'm like, yes, I cry. I can't picture you crying ever. And I do cry, and I'm not going to like conjure up tears right now. But the last time I cried was preparing this message, which was not too long ago. And I'm reading this. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and ah, they're fishing, blah, 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 blah. And Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment. He was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And I'm like, I can't get, <laughs> like, I got to walk away, all right, toughen up, all right, go drink something, some, something manly or something. <laughs> uh, all right, let's do this again. And he threw him, and I just, I just kept crying every time I got to the part of Peter. Because I'm like, that is such a beautiful picture of what Christianity is. Like, they are fishermen. That's what they do. They are grown men. And they're in this boat, and most of the grown men kind of take the boat back like you would expect to happen. But Peter throws himself into the water. Why? Because that's the Lord. And he goes to meet him. And I was just like, gosh, that is what we get. Jesus, we get to go to. Like, the, like, what picture, what other picture is like this? And the only thing I can think of is, two, Forrest Gump, greatest movies of all time, <laughs> Lieutenant Dan's on the shore, and Forrest Gump, and how does he get to <laughs> Lieutenant Dan? He jumps in the water and the boat keeps going. Why? Because he loves Lieutenant Dan. Or me, I've got all my kids getting older and they're starting to kind of, you know, suppress their love and affection for dad, except for little baby Ozzy. Whenever I see him, I walk in and he's like wobbly sprinting to me. Love you, daddy. And we see a grown man give us a picture of what it's like to see Jesus. By faith for the first time, by faith for the thousandth time, by our own eyes one day when he returns in glory, we are all going to jump in and throw ourselves at the feet of him. Why? Because he's the Lord. Now pause right there. They're now on the land. The last thing Peter's offered to Jesus in terms of sacrifice is denial. Ah, that's not my guy. And now they're face to face. And now we get to see what restoration looks like. There's restoration, you know, in work, you got to work through stuff, in marriage and counseling, everybody's working through restoration of some sort. But when we talk about our Lord Jesus Christ, what does it feel like to be restored by him? Here are the five beautiful truths of restoration we get to walk through. And here's the very first one. Jesus, our restorer, redeems our lowest moments. So I'll have those on the screen. Jesus, our restorer, will redeem has redeemed, will continue to redeem our lowest moments. Where do I see that? So Peter now is on the ground. The other guys get in a logical, common sense sort of way. Peter, worshipful heart, is there in a second. Verse 9, they got out on the land. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, which I was He's apparently pretty strong, too, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to Peter, the denier, come and have breakfast. Now one of the, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, and we've seen this scene before. He took the bread, 
And he gave it to them and also with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What a beautiful picture of what the gospel offers. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We have messed up mightily. Peter has messed up very recently. In crux time, when Jesus needed a friend and he abandoned him. After he had said, no, 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 those guys, not me. He fulfilled his own prophetic words against himself. He is a messed up sinner like all of us. And now here's the reunion tour and Jesus is back and Jesus says, hey, I got an idea. Let's have breakfast. I'll provide the fish. Let's eat together. That is the gospel. God is not standing far off waiting for you to get your stuff together, me to get our stuff together. He is coming towards us and he says, hey, let's have a meal together. That's why we celebrate communion. Because he told us, do this. Why? To remember me. He says, come and have breakfast. But here's what can be missed in this verse. Where is the breakfast? Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on bread. Pause right there. So they're on land and there's a charcoal fire. And John is a brilliant writer. C.S. Lewis says the Gospel of John is one of the greatest literature gifts to the world ever. If you go back, I'm not going to make you, but John chapter 18, I'll read it here. The servant girl at the door, this is the night of Jesus' crucifixion, says, you're not one of these man's disciples, are you? And he says, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves there. Peter was also with them, standing, warming himself by a charcoal fire. You read further into John chapter 18, he denies them twice, three times, and it says, while he was standing by the fire. And now the next time he's with Jesus is by a charcoal fire. Is that a coincidence? No, because we believe God is sovereign over all things. And he's meeting Jesus, or Peter in his lowest moment. Do you remember what you did last time you were by a charcoal fire? Let's have breakfast by this charcoal fire. Why? Because that's what a restorer does. And specifically, the gospel restoration is not that God is going to go around our sin and kind of avoid it. Let's not talk about it. Some of us come from those families like, let's just stuff it all. Let's just keep it here. No, we're going to go right down into the lowest, darkest moments of your life. And in that, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore all things. And this charcoal fire is a picture of what God does in the lives of us. He meets you at your lowest moment. A little bit of taste of this for me. Part of my story is just caring way too much what people thought of me. So the sort of things I grabbed hold of to sort of build my identity as a young man was baseball and pursuit of girls. And baseball was like the thing. Like, it was my thing. And I wasn't that great, but it was my thing. And God got a hold of my life by giving me a bad baseball season. I'm like, oh, that's, that, that's not really a God that I can grab hold of. So baseball, in my story, is like sort of this twisted, distorted gift that God has given me that I've used poorly. And now he saved me and redeemed me and restored me. And now I get to see baseball in the lives of my kids as a coach with the gospel as my center. And now I get to experience baseball all over again. So when I think of baseball, I don't think of lame, insecure, 17-year-old Josh. I think of my boys. I think of Little League Baseball. If you were to ask Peter, you like fire? Are you a campfire guy, Peter? <laughs> I am a campfire guy. 
Well, why? What memories do you have by a campfire? He has one memory that he wished he could take away, but it's not going anywhere. It's a part of his story like you and I, the stuff that just is there. He's like, but I also have this one memory where the one who I denied met me by a fire and fed me and loved me. Restoration meets us in our lowest moments. The second thing we down, this one's going to take a little unpacking. Jesus, our restorer, also strips us down. What do I mean by that? He's now got Peter there. They're having a fire. They're having a great time. How does Jesus uh, name Peter? This is fascinating, but let's just read and see how Peter is addressed here. Verse 15, they finish this beautiful reconciliatory breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Go down just a smidge. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Go down to verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Pause right there. A lot of times when you read the Bible, like the names just, they're confusing because it's like not our cultural context. Sometimes it's like Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody talks about themselves in terms of Andrew of Seattle. That's who I am. I am Andrew of Seattle. I am Jesus of, and this, so it's a lot of times you could just read past this. Most names you're like, blah, 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 and they're hard to read. But this is fascinating because one other time, Peter is called Simon, son of John. All the other times, it's Peter the rock. But pause. Jesus says, Simon, son of John. And the very first time is when Jesus first meets him. John chapter 1. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at this man and said, Simon, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Peter the rock. And then that language kind of gets put on the shelf. It's Peter, 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 Peter. And then we get to the end of this. Simon. Son of John. Simon, son of John. What's going on there? Is Jesus just kind of willy-nilly pulling nicknames out of his hat? Ah, what am I going to call you today? I think it's key that when Peter starts his relationship with Jesus, he strips him down to you are Simon, son of John. Like you're a created man just like the rest of us. You come from a father and a mother. You're Simon, son of John. Meaning, like, his come to faith, his time to follow Jesus was not tied up in all the hype of who he is or who he could be, which is how religion works. How do you get favor in religion that is not biblical Christianity? You show yourself to be something special. I'm Josh, righteous one. Let me tell you, show you how I am righteous, worthy, fill in the blanks. I was just in Boise, and there's Mormon temples everywhere. And at the top of the one temple... Worthy, worthy, worthy. And it's not talking about Jesus who is worthy. It's how to live a worthy life. Simon, son of John. Let's not talk about your worthiness. It's just, I see you. From dust you came, from dust you will go. And that's true of all of us. And he's stripping him down. And now it's here, post his major screw up. But I think more importantly, right before his ministry success just blows up. He's about to start a 3,000-person church plus. Like, personally, I can relate to that as a pastor. Like, what if next week this thing blew up? It would be very hard to contain the, the distorted motives in my heart. 
and not take credit for this wonderful 3,000-person church, and Peter is about to enter into that. Fast forward to Acts chapter 4, even after that, he's preaching, and he's bold, and they're like, who are these guys are just fishermen? They are doing something special, and 5,000 were added. He's about to enter into success, and Jesus is stripping all that way. He's like, just so you know, Simon, son of John. Like, I don't know if this is freeing for you, but it's freeing for me to sort of just from time to time be like, Josh, son of Mike, son of Maureen. And I get there's baggage and there's good and bad that comes with family of origin. That's not the point. The point is it's not about all the good I could do, all the success I could have, or all the negative and all the sin and all the shameful things I've done. Like that's all the stuff that we all are sort of living in. The world says you got to get success and you got to avoid all these shameful things. And we're all sort of like, am I doing enough? Like how good is my good here? How bad is my bad? And we're all the same. We are just Simon. Son of John, Josh, son of Mike, right before his ministry success kicks off, just so you know, you are still Simon, son of John. Like, here's what's fascinating. Think about your work. Think about the non-like intimate relationships in your life. Like, how many people could call you, hey, Adam, son of, like, I love Adam Cook. I don't know his dad's name. I love Genesee. I don't know her dad's name. I don't know her mom's name. Heather Lingabox, daughter of, I, I got to research Google. Meaning, because we, we're all relating to people based off sort of what we present, good or bad. And Jesus, the creator of the universe, sees you at your very origin. Strip it all away, and he knows you. That's a freeing truth in a world that is demanding us to stack up our greatness and to hide and to push down our evil and sin and shame. We're all just sons and daughters of an earthly father, an earthly mother, but also a heavenly king. And with Peter, right before he takes off, he's like, just so you know, you're still just John's son. Don't forget that, Pete. You're going to do a lot of great things, but you are still John's son and my heavenly father's son. What else do we see here? The restorer Jesus also forgives completely. So this is where we're not going to go necessarily verse by verse, but what do I mean by this? Peter screwed up, not once, not twice, not three times, a billion times. But in relation to this moment, he's coming off this like threefold sinful night. And what does Jesus do with him? He gives him a threefold chance to repent. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, or Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Pause right there. Just, this is fast. Do you love me more than these, Peter? That's his first question. Love me more than what? There's three options, I think. Do you love me more than these? Fishing and all that comes with fishing. A lot of guys would be like, no, fishing's the greatest. Okay. Do you love me more than these? The other option is, do you love me more than these? Picture his disciples there. Do you love me more than the Zebedee boys and Thomas? Or I think this is what John is writing in here that Jesus is getting at. Do you love me more than these guys love you? Because here was Peter's claim to fame. I'm going to be here. All these other schmoes are going to be tripping all over themselves, not doing a great job at this. But Lord, never will I deny you. These guys will. Hey, Peter, let's talk. Now that the dust is settled, do you love me more than these guys love me? I don't know if Peter understood the question, but I think he's, Jesus is saying the cross is a level playing field. 
in our pursuit of God is not looking to our right, looking to our left, and how much more we're loving God than others. It's just looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews says. Do you love me more than these? His response, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. End of interaction. What is Jesus doing here? I think that's core. He's restoring Peter completely so that all those sins, one, two, and three, have a covering of grace offered in this moment. But he's also showing a picture of what sin actually is because his language he's using is love language. Not love language like touch time, all that stuff, but like words of love. Do you agape me, Jesus said. Do you unconditionally love me? Yes, I love you. Do you agape me? Do you unconditionally love me? Yes, I love you. Do you phileo me, brotherly love me? Yes, you know I love you. So Jesus changes the language to the last one. Every time Peter responds, it's I love you, Philadelphia, brotherly love you. What's the point? I think Jesus is creating space for him to repent. Well, what is repentance? Just looking back at a moment saying, I wish I hadn't done that. I should do better next time. And no, it's looking at yourself and saying, how are my loves in life? Augustine says this. Here's what sin is. Our loves are not rightly ordered. If we were to go home and kind of list out, what do I love most in life? At our core, here's what's at the top of every list. Me. This one pastor I love, his wife would sing him this song to remind him that, hey, me, 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 I love myself. I have my picture on my shelf. That is you, Tommy, she would say. And he leads a giant church in Texas, and he is a me, 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 me answer, just like all of us. Why did Peter deny Jesus? Because he loves Peter most. Something in that moment, he had to preserve himself. He had to shrink back. He had to like, ah, I don't want to step into this pain. Why? Because I love Peter. Do you love me? And Jesus is giving him space to repent and say, yes, I love you. Jesus knows it's not a, well, Peter's going to leave here fixed. It's an ongoing. Martin Luther said, all of life is one of repentance. Like looking at our love and reordering. Time and time and time again. And I love that Peter says, it says here about Peter, he was grieved. He does not look back on that moment and be like, ah, the gospel takes care of it. Yeah. He doesn't avoid it and stick it under a rug. He doesn't over like, ah, oh, woe is me. But there's this space where he is grieved in his soul for not loving Jesus with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. I'm not going to do a show of hands but like in this last week, these last seven days, has there been moments where you've repented, where you've looked at your life, looked at your actions, looked at you as a coworker, as a boss, as a mom, as a husband, as a single person, and said, ah, oh, my loves are out of whack right now. I need to repent. That's what's happening here. And Jesus does it three times to say, how many times will I offer you forgiveness? Every time. My grace never runs out. My mercies are new every day. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Yes, I love you. Okay, we'll have this conversation again, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, but just know I forgive you completely. As far as is the east is from the west, your sins are that far away, Peter. Colossians says it like this, all of your sin, Peter. 
I've taken and I put it on a paper and I've nailed it to the cross and I've canceled the debt. All of it's forgiven. But you need to stop and have these moments of grief that hopefully lead you to repentance. Second Corinthians, Apostle Paul wrote, and he says, there is a godly grief, same exact word as it's happening with Peter, that leads to repentance and salvation and life without regret. So you, we all have grief. The Bible says we have two options on what to do with that grief. We have an option towards repentance, rethinking, focusing on Jesus, saying, Jesus, you know I love you, and heading towards life without regret. Or there is a worldly grief, which is a bit of a show, and it leads you to death, Corinthians says. We watch Peter take the repentance path towards life without regret. I can't wait to talk to Peter about this. Like, think what's going on in his heart. It's just a beautiful moment. I would just want to stay in this moment forever. I think there was a worship song. I just want to stay in this moment forever because he's forgiven. But the Christian life is more than just being forgiven. It's more than just forgiveness for your sins, forgiveness from the wrath of God. It's forgiveness towards something. And that's what Jesus gets into. Hey, Peter, just so you know, you're forgiven, but you've got a job to do. He restores us, forgives us, but he also recommissions us. This is what we see here. He gives us a new work to do. Reminder, Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I love you. Tend my flock. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. Like one author said this, Jesus has one love language. Love language book, if you haven't read it, it's great. Time, touch, all those. Mine's touch and words, if you're aware, you know. One of those you can give me, the other one don't give me. But. Yeah. Jesus has one love language, and it's obedience. That's it. Like, do what I said. I love you, Jesus. Didn't you see me singing? Hillsong was here Wednesday, man. I really got after it. There's a lot of people leaving the Hillsong that don't love Jesus. If they'd let it be defined according to what Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He doesn't let, like, let us sit in this feelings sort of inner, just what does love feel like inside of me? Love should go out and do something. And for Peter, which is a different calling than we have, he is called to build the church as a pastor, as a leader, as a shepherd, as an elder. Feed, tend, care for my flock. That is your call, Peter. What is God calling you to do? Ephesians 2 says this, you have been forgiven and you are God's workmanship now. And he's created these good works for you this poetry that you're supposed to walk in. Do you know what you're walking in? Is it for the glory of God, for the good of others? Out of love for Jesus and others. Because we have been recommissioned. We are not forgiven just to sit and sing worship songs till he comes back. We are now called to go out. And Peter's call is to feed his sheep, take care of his flock. Like just on, I don't know what yours is. I read a book that said you don't really know what you're doing in your life till you're 40. So I'm coming up on far. So I apparently... I'm getting close to knowing what life's about. <laughs> but I remember going on a prayer retreat, just myself, trying to, God, what, what am I on? If I had to boil it down, like, what am I supposed to be doing? And mine was, I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a friend. And vocationally, how would I talk about what I'm put on earth to do? I'm a pastor, here to pastor people. But more than that, not more than, but alongside that, I'm also a, a ministry builder, meaning I'm, I sort of have giftings to help stuff get built, and I want to do that faithfully. 
Peter, your call is to feed and tend and care for my flock. That is your job. Do you know your job? Just if you're 35 or younger, I'll give you one of your jobs right now. Okay? Aubrey likes this. Where is he going with this? Because as you, I'm like, you read about what's God's call in my life? What's my will? Like, here's what's abundantly clear as you read the New Testament. As churches are being built, sexual perversion is everywhere. And one of the calls unique to the Christian community that the rest of the world doesn't want to hear is your purity in Christ Jesus. Here's what your will is, to flee from all sexual immorality. That alone is a hard enough task before you go thinking about all the ways you're going to change the world. Flee from sexual immorality. This church is young, and we already have story upon story upon story of sexual immorality. Flee from it. Why? Because you love Jesus. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I said. Feed my sheep. You. Do what God tells you to do because you love him. That's his love language. But finally, here's how Jesus ends. He ends with this in verse 18. Truly, truly. Just a little Bible reminder. Truly, truly is amen, amen. It's like the charismatic moment for Jesus to say, this is important. It's like Steinbecker's over there saying, come on, yes, get it, what? Jesus gets charismatic in verse 18 about something that does not seem something that I would be pumped up about. Verse 18, truly, truly, amen, amen. Get it, Jesus. What are you about to say? Get it. I say to you, when you were young, talking to Peter still, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. I did not see that coming. Jesus also does this. Here's a final point. As the restorer of our lives, he helps us reimagine what life is really about. And it's not about an endless up and to the right trajectory. It's about like Peter being invited into a life where it's not our will, but your will be done. And for Peter, he's specifically saying, this is going to involve your death also. Peter was killed probably 64 AD, people think crucified upside down because they said, I don't want to be identified with Jesus. I'm not worthy to be, have, have the same death as him. So a crucified upside down apostle. John is writing this about 90 to 100 AD, which means John knows he might have been there. He's for sure heard it. He's heard story upon story of the faithfulness of Peter unto the end. And he gets to write these words down for us to hear of Jesus saying, here's what the good life's going to be. Far different than you thought. People are going to lead you where you don't want to go. And your arms are going to be stretched out, Peter. That's the good life. Like, that's not how our world works if we just let the world and culture, our own thoughts, define reality. We want to be restored, forgiven, then go out. You do you. No, it's go feed my sheep, tend my flock, take care of business, and also not your will but my will, which involves your death, Peter. And then Peter, or Jesus ends with this, which is, I think is an invitation to Peter and to us. And after saying this, he says to Peter, follow me. And it's like he wraps up his discipleship journey with Peter. That's all I got for you. I've restored your soul. I will forgive you a thousand times. Seventy times seven, I will forgive you, Peter. I will not show up with shame and guilt and pointing the finger. I will show up with a meal every time, Peter. I am here for you, Peter, son of John. Don't forget where you came from. And don't get too caught up in all this. 
but I got a job for you to do. Your forgiveness is not meant for you to enjoy in a room by yourself. Go out and feed my sheep. And it's going to lead you to where you don't want to go. Are you ready? Follow me, Peter. And that's the end of the gospel. That's a beautiful picture of Christianity and what we get as we meet Jesus, our restorer. Some of us have met him. I hope this reminds us that he's a good restorer of our souls who comes to us at our lowest moments and send us off with good work to do. Let's pray together. Father, uh, be with us as we worship out in a hot room without AC. God, I pray that we would not be distracted from what your spirit is doing in us and for us on what we need to see as we go to your word again. You are our shepherd and you lead us and you guide us and you restore our soul. And as we look and remember Peter whose soul was restored, God, we ask that you would do it again even as we sing together and as we take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, in my prayer, amen.